Amen. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks to Jack for reading our passage and to Candice and the rest of the team for leading us in song. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for the chance to gather as your people. Uh, we see this as a gift, and so we're grateful to you for it. And we ask now that you would come and speak to us uh, clearly and unmistakably through your word, uh, your word which never fails. And so um, it's a word that gives us uh, light unto our paths. And so we confess, Lord, that we need more light on our paths, that we might walk in more courageous obedience. And so we ask that you would send your spirit now here uh, to lead us in all truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start this morning by saying how grateful I am uh, for the chance to preach and to continue our series in the Psalms. One of the reasons I love the Psalms is because of their massive emotional scope, right? In the Psalms, we have the highest of joys and the lowest of despairs. We have glorious praise sung to our God and heart-wrenching lament cried out to him. And this teaches us that God is not afraid of our emotions. He welcomes us to honestly engage them, to bring them before him, and to find that he is always our rock and our redeemer, whatever we might be feeling at the time. Our text this morning, Psalm 24, is a psalm of hope. Hope might not be an emotion, but it is emotional. Hope is a virtue. Hope is a stronghold. Hope is faith longing for beauty and truth and goodness. Hope is faith longing for beauty and truth and goodness. Today, Sunday, December 2nd, is the first Sunday of Advent. We just sang joy to the world. It means that Christmas is less than four weeks away. Advent is the season in the Christian calendar which leads up to Christmas. It's the season where we learn to expect the coming of Christ. It's a season of Hope. The word advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means arrival. And the Greek word that's equivalent to that is the word that's used to refer to the second coming of Christ, the second arrival of Christ. So advent is the season of arrival. It's the season when we Christians celebrate the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh at Bethlehem. But it's also the season when we prepare for his second coming, his second arrival, the season where we learn to long for that and expect it and hope for it. So Advent is a season full of hope. It is a hopeful season, and today is the beginning of it. And my prayer has been that our text this morning will teach us how to hope that it will teach us, Evanston Bible Fellowship, to be a hopeful people. So that's been my prayer for this sermon and for this season of Advent here for us as a church, that we would learn to hope. Because hope does not come easily. We have all had certain hopes deferred, and we don't know where we should place our hope. Paul writes in Romans, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Hope is hard because we hope for things that we have not yet seen. We hope for healing. We hope for redemption. We hope for reconciliation. 
Ultimately, we hope for resurrection, but we hope precisely because we have not yet seen these things. We hope against all darkness. And as theologian Fleming Rutledge says in her recent book, Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New. Israel captive and waiting for her Savior. And then on a dark night in the middle of Bethlehem, the light of the world is born. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, arrived. Advent begins in the dark. So today our text is Psalm 24, and it's about Advent hope. It was already read for us, but before we get into it, I want to quickly do one more thing. Just as last week Jack gave us the historical context about David and Absalom before he preached Psalm 3, I want us to briefly think about the historical context for our psalms that we can understand what it's meaning originally and what it means to us today. Now, Psalm 3 says in the inscription precisely when it was written, right? It tells us that it was written when David was fleeing from his son Absalom. Psalm 24 doesn't tell us. All it says is a psalm of David. But nearly all biblical scholars say, and I agree, that this psalm was most likely written when David brought the ark of God into Jerusalem. And that story is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 6. You don't need to turn there. I'll just recap it for us briefly. And I trust that you'll see why it is that people think this is what was going on when this psalm was written as we go through it this morning. So in 2 Samuel 6, David is the king of Israel. Saul has died and David has taken the throne and he's having a lot of success. He's just defeated the Philistine army. And now he's decided to bring the Ark of God into Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And the Ark is where God lived. It's where his presence dwelled. And there were very specific instructions about how you were to move it should you need to transport it. You can read about these instructions in Exodus 25 or Numbers 4 or Numbers 7. It was to be carried by priests on very specific golden poles and it was never to be touched by human hands. But David has the ark transported on an ox cart, escorted by the sons of Abinadab. And David and the house of Israel are walking before this cart, dancing and celebrating that the presence of God is coming with them. But they don't have the proper reverence for what's going on here. They are moving God, the Holy One of Israel. And as they go along, the oxen stumble. And Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, reaches out his hand to keep the ark from falling. And at that moment, the holiness of the God, who is good but not safe, strikes him dead. And David was afraid of the Lord on that day and was no longer willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city. So David leaves it where it is, and he returns to Jerusalem without the presence of God. And then some months pass, and the place where the ark was left, the city that it was left in, begins to prosper. And David hears word of this, and he remembers that the presence of God is of more value than anything else in the world. 
So he decides to try again to bring the ark into Jerusalem. But this time, he understands the significance of what he's doing. And now the ark is being brought along, no longer on an ox cart. And as they go, David stops and offers sacrifices along the way. And he and the whole house of Israel dance before the Lord as they walk towards Jerusalem. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. So David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord into the city. And Saul's daughter, Michal, saw David dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. How could he celebrate like such a fool? But David continued to dance and offer sacrifices, saying with his limbs and his lips that the presence of God is something to be celebrated, that the arrival of God is something to dance for. And McCall approaches David and asks him with total disgust, how could you dance like such a fool in front of everyone, disgracing yourself and your God? And David responds and says, I was not dancing before men, but before the Lord, and I will become even more undignified than this. McCall thought David was a fool, but she was the one who could not see the significance of the event of the ark of God coming to dwell in their city. She had no hope in the arrival of her Lord. But David saw it for what it was, and he danced. I think it will be so helpful to keep this story in our minds as we turn now to look at our psalm, Psalm 24. And I don't want to create false expectations, but I believe, I mean, I really believe that at the end of this psalm, we should be having a full fledged dance party. We should be having a dance party. Because when we learn to place our hope in the arrival of the Lord, the world might call it foolish, but we, along with David, will dance. We will dance with all our might. Now, before you try to picture me starting this party, let's take a look at our psalm. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. If you consider the psalm as a whole, you'll see that it is pretty clearly broken up into three sections. Your English Bibles will probably even have a space in between each of the three sections. Verses 1 and 2 teach us about God, the creator of the world. Verses 3 through 6 teach us about God, the Holy One in our midst. And verses 7 through 10 teach us about God, the coming King of glory. God is the creator of the world, the holy one in our midst, the coming king of glory. And in the end, we'll see how these things come together to give us great hope in this Advent season. So let's begin with verses 1 and 2. You can read them with me. Now, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David begins this psalm by coming out strong. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. It all belongs to him, every square inch, the world and those who dwell therein, the whole world, everyone in it. The container and the contents are his. The container and the contents are his. All the earth under your feet, it belongs to the Lord. 
Oh, and your feet too, they are his. Everything on the earth belongs to God. Every piece of land, every plant, and every animal, everybody on the earth is the Lord's. Every nation, every property, every cloud and mountain and planet and lion, every car and every house, every dollar in your bank account, it is all the Lord's. It all belongs to God. When we take up offering as part of our worship service, this is what we say with our words and our actions. We give because it is all his. We do not own it. We might be stewards of it. He might entrust certain parts of it to us for a time, but it is not ours. The earth is the Lord's. And verse 2 tells us why. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth is the Lord's because he created it. He is the creator of all things. Steve Jobs might have designed the iPhone, and Elon Musk might have built the Tesla, but neither of them have ever created something out of nothing. God spoke, and the world came to be. He created matter with his word. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. There is a massive gap between any creativity we express as creatures and the creativity of God who created the world and everything in it by the word of his power. The earth is the Lord's because he is the creator of it. To the original readers, verse 2 might have had even a little bit more significance than it does to us initially. In the Old Testament, seas and rivers and other bodies of water often represent a sort of chaos, a mythical and powerful force that presents a danger. And in Hebrew poetry, one way to talk about the power of God was to speak of him as the one who is in control of the chaotic waters. So Psalm 74 speaks of God dividing the seas, God drying up the streams. Psalm 93 says that God is more powerful than the breakers of the sea. In Matthew 8, Jesus calms a storm, and the disciples marvel and say, what sort of man is this, that even the sea obeys him? Revelation 21 dreams of a day when the sea was no more. And here, our psalm pictures God creating the world on top of the waters, founding it upon the seas and establishing it upon the rivers. This is not making a cosmological claim, not an explanation of the way that God created the world, but a proclamation of his power over the chaotic darkness of the waters. God said to Lake Michigan, this far you may come and no further, because here I will create land for people to live on and dwell in and rule over, a place for them to come to know me as their creator. Calvin calls creation a theater of God's glory. Creation is full of signposts that point us to God, beautiful images that lead us to sing his praise. Creation bears witness to the power and glory of God. The sun rising or setting behind the lake, the first morning in fall when you can see your breath, the white snow clinging to a tree like it's been there forever. These are all glimpses of the glory of God who created them all. And creation leads us to hope because hope is faith longing for beauty. Hope is faith longing for beauty. We see things in the world that are beautiful, and at times these things make our hearts ache. 
with longing for more. Where does that beauty come from? To whom do I give praise for that? If our delight in creation stops there and does not move in gratitude to the one who created it, our delight turns into idolatry. Creation is a gift full of beauty and glory that is meant to point us to God. C.S. Lewis says that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The earth is the Lord's, and this leads us to hope. It points us to him. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. After speaking about the powerful creator God, David reminds us of his holiness. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? Who can ascend his hill? Who can be in his holy place? And the first answer is, no one can. Because, Paul writes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not some of us, not most people, all of us. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And God's glory is the line by which we are all judged. And at this point, we should remember the historical context of this psalm. The son of Abinadab who reached out his hand and touched the ark of God was struck dead. And that should give us pause. We need to pause. We just sang, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. And that is what we want. We do long for the Lord's presence, but we need to remember just what it is we're asking when we say that. Holy Spirit. Fill this place. What a terrifying and wonderful thought. And though verse 3 gives us pause, verses 4 through 6 give us reason to hope. They seem to teach that there is a way for us to stand in the presence of this holy God. It is the way of truth. Those who can stand in the presence of God have clean hands and pure hearts. They are those who do not lift up their souls to what is false. They do not swear deceitfully. We're not deceiving ourselves into thinking that the holiness of God is not that big of a deal. We're being honest about our sin and his holiness. And when we're honest, we receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. Not because God has forgotten about his holiness. Not because he just decided that our sin wasn't that big of a deal after all. But because he sent his son to take our sin and put it to death on the cross. Paying our debt with his broken body. Washing us clean with his spilled blood. 
Tim Keller says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful than we ever feared. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful than we ever feared. And at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The good news lets us tell the truth about ourselves and about our God. Our tongues have been freed from lies. And there are a lot of lies in the world. And at times, I want to believe them. And I want to lift up my soul to what is false. The Hebrew of verse 4 literally means to lift up one's soul to emptiness. There's a lot of emptiness that we try to fill ourselves with. We pretend to be perfect. We pretend that everything is relative. Lies we tell ourselves, looking for peace, but instead finding fear. Looking for comfort, but instead being gripped with more anxiety. The lies are everywhere, and they are always traps. But we've heard that Jesus Christ is the way, and the truth, and the life. And he promised that he would send his spirit to lead us in all truth, and that the truth will set us free. And so we're not lifting up our souls to what is false. We're not lifting up our souls to emptiness, but to a solid rock on which we stand, a firm foundation in which we hope. Verse 6 shows us that the truth-tellers are the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob who wrestles with us as we seek him and his truth. And so we're reminded that this isn't always easy, that sometimes it leaves us walking with a limp. But these verses invite us to hope, because hope is faith longing for truth. Hope is faith longing for truth, and the truth will set us free. The truth is that Christ is our only hope. Let's turn now to the last part of our passage, verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. As David approaches Jerusalem with the ark of God, he calls out and tells the city to get ready. Lift up your gates and doors that the king of glory may come in. Make room for him in your city. And they ask in response, who is this king of glory that is coming in? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. This third part of the passage is basically saying this. The king of glory is coming. Get ready for him. That was the word that Israel needed to hear. And that's the word that we need to hear. That's what this passage is about. That's why we preach it on the first Sunday of Advent. The king of glory is coming. Let 
every heart, prepare him room. And we need the Lord to soften our hearts this Advent season. Because we have ancient doors around them. We have gates that try to keep him from coming in. We have old habits. We have sinful practices. We have disordered desires that want to keep him out of our hearts. And we need those ancient doors to be lifted up that the king of glory may come in. And that's what we want as a church. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come, take away our ancient doors. Rip off our gates that the king of glory may come in. Come, have your way, Lord Jesus. That's what we're preparing for in Advent. So, yes, Christmas is about celebrating the birth of Christ in a manger. And what a marvelous gift God made flesh. Jesus is not someone who came and told us the way to God. Jesus came and said, I am God, and I'm here to save you. And Advent is about remembering and celebrating that truth which sets us free. But Advent is about more than that. It's not just remembering. It's when we set our hearts in unwavering hope, in brave expectancy of the arrival of Christ. It's not just about his first coming, but his second one. And this passage, which speaks about the king of glory, reminds us that we're not waiting for baby Jesus to come back. So, yes, let's have our Christmas plays with Mary and Joseph. Yes, let's set out the nativity scenes with a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. But let's remember that we are expecting, we are hoping for the arrival of the King of glory, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. He is the King of glory, and he is coming back. And that is what we hope for in Advent. Advent begins in the dark. And there's a sense in which the church is always in Advent because we exist in the time between the first and second arrivals of Christ. He came and lived and died and rose again, and it is finished. And yet, we long for him to come again. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom us, your captive Israel. We hope against all darkness, and there is still a lot of darkness. And I'm not talking about darkness out there in the world, some abstraction that doesn't hit us here. I'm talking about darkness here, in this room, here in the life of Evanston Bible Fellowship. Some of it is sinful, some of it is not, but the result of sin in some sense. All of it is an indication that things are not yet the way they're supposed to be. And this darkness is here. Cancer, depression, pornography, wayward children that we want to come home, illnesses that we want to be healed, torn relationships that we want to be reconciled. We hope for these things that we do not yet see. We hope for things we do not yet see. We're longing for goodness to come and make all things right. And sometimes that kind of hope raises questions, 
really honest and really scary questions. Lord, are you here? Lord, do you care? Lord, are you good and strong? And if so, why haven't these things happened yet? Why haven't you come and put death's dark shadow to flight yet? Some of you might be in a season right now where these questions are on your heart. And these questions will want to drive you to isolation. But I pray that our church is the kind of community where people can ask these questions and know that they're loved and not alone. And I know that it can be, because this time last year, I was in that season. And Sam Van Skoik sat with me in it. And my ethos community came around me and let me know that I was not alone. And I know that those questions are still here for a lot of you. But he will come. And when he does, we will see that he was more present, that he was more caring, more strong, more in control than we thought he was. We will learn that he is more patient, more gracious, more kind and good and just and loving and wise, more glorious, more satisfying than we ever imagined. We have not overestimated him. Quite the opposite. He will come, and when he does, all things will be made right. And this is not a trivial answer to those honest and scary questions. It is to confess that some things take a long time to be made right. Some things take the end of time. And we wait for these things in hope. Hope that is faith longing for beauty and truth and goodness. Hope that expects an arrival. You know where I see this kind of hope, this kind of expectancy? At the baggage claim in the airport. That's where I see this kind of expectancy. Because there stands the husband who's waiting for his wife to return from a business trip, waiting with flowers in hand. He's waiting with expectancy because he knows that she is coming. He doesn't precisely know when she'll get there, but he is sure that she is on her way. Because she booked her ticket. She took her seat. Her plane has landed. She is walking down the terminal to be reunited with him. And so he waits, looking down the hallway with great hope in her arrival. Can you picture it? And that's the kind of expectancy that Advent invites us to have. That's the kind of expectancy that this passage is about. Because, if you'll stay with the image, Christ has booked his ticket. He has taken his seat. His plane has landed. He's walking down the terminal, and are we waiting for him? Are we looking down the hallway of heaven, saying, that's my Lord, and here he comes? Lift up your gates. He is coming. We don't know when, but we know he's coming back to make all things right. And when he comes, the trees will clap their hands, and the mountains will melt. 
The hills will bow down and the valleys be lifted up to greet him as heaven and nature sing, as we our songs employ together with the heavenly chorus that he is the king of glory. And he has come to save us. That is our sure hope. That is our hope against all darkness. And the world will look at this and they will despise us in their hearts. How dare we hope like that? What a foolish and naive thing to do. Don't you know that you've been waiting for 2,000 years and that hasn't even touched the word soon? And our answer to them is always, we'll become even more undignified than this. Come and dance with us. And we pray that they would come. So that's the kind of hope this psalm invites us to. That's the opportunity that Advent gives us, that we would dare to hope like that. And so to close, I want to do something that I believe will help us hope. Verses 7 through 10 in our passage are an ancient song, a part of Israel's liturgy that was used during temple worship, and it's a call and response liturgy. So I'm going to put the passage up on screen um, and invite you to stand as we, as we end with this. And the point here is that as this scripture comes from our lips and comes to our ears, that it would give birth to an Advent hope, that we would begin this season by remembering that scripture teaches us how to hope, that we hope in the arrival of the King of glory. So I'll read the first line of each verse, and then you all will read the next two, which are in bold. And let's recite the passage two times through, and then I'll close our time in prayer. I trust that as this word fills this room, that it would lead us to an expectant hope in the arrival of this King of glory. So here we go. Let's proclaim this to each other. And again, we'll go through it twice. Lift up your heads, O gates. Who is this King of Glory? Lift up your heads, O gates. Who is this King of Glory? more time. Lift up your heads, O gates. Who is this King of glory? Lift up your heads, O gates. Who is this King of glory? Amen. Father, thank you for this good news, this King of glory who is strong and mighty and coming to save us. And we confess that at times it is hard for us to hope in the second coming, but we ask that you would give us hope, that you would send your spirit into our hearts, get rid of our ancient doors, and let us be people who are eager for you to come back. Use even this Advent season to teach us what it's like to hope, to expect you to come. 
Lord, we've prayed this, and we, we continue to pray together with the living and the dead. And we say, come, thou long-expected Jesus. We want you to come back and make all things right. And we pray this in his name, the name of the coming Son of God. Amen.